Radio. An exorcist tells his story with Bishop Julian Porteous. On the 15th of August 2012, the Catholic Chaplaincy at the University of Sydney invited Bishop Julian Porteous to share his experience as an exorcist in the Archdiocese of Sydney. To begin with, I'd like to ask all of you a question. How many people here have seen a movie about exorcisms? <laughs> Nearly everyone? <laughs> a few people like me who are scaredy cats who haven't that there? I your attention to a movie that came out yeah. early last year or just before then. So a movie came out um, just last year. What's this <laughs> it was called The Right. And one of the taglines for The Right was inspired by true events. And this movie starred Anthony Hopkins as a, as a Catholic priest who was performing exorcisms. So, um, I mean, this craze of exorcist movies has been going since 1973 with the famous movie by William Friedkin, The Exorcist. And the world's imagination has been captured by this concept of, of the devil, demonic possession, and this ministry of exorcisms. But I think for us today, it seems like something a bit crazy, something that's fiction, that's in the supernatural imagination of, of um, creative people, but that's it. Really, it's just something that we read about in the books or watch in movies, and, and, and that's all. However, for over 2,000 years, Christians have professed the reality of the devil and this ministry of exorcisms. And um, so it's very scary, and I think perhaps this idea of it being real is what makes it so scary. I know that after watching The Exorcist, I was very scared. It was the closest I ever came to being white, seriously, you know, <laughs> after watching that movie. But, um, yeah, so, so I'd like to ask Bishop Julian, first of all, <laughs> can you introduce to us this concept of exorcisms? Sure. I think a very good uh, starting point when, when we talk about this is <clears throat> exactly to go back to the scriptures. There's, there's something that I find quite uh, arresting in um, some Mark's gospel. So, uh, you might know Mark's is the shortest of the gospels and it doesn't begin with uh, like a nativity account, say, as you find in Luke and so forth, but cuts right to the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. And in chapter 1 of St Mark's gospel, we're told that, that Jesus established himself at the at Capernaum and the Sea of Galilee as the location for his, the beginning of his ministry. And that tells us that uh, on the Sabbath day, he went to the local synagogue in Capernaum. And Capernaum is just a little seaside village um, on the Sea of Galilee. He went there and he, be, and he, he preached. He began to, he, and he preached. We're told then that the people were impressed with him because he really seemed to be preaching with, with great authority. But then we're told quite an extraordinary thing happened. As he was preaching, suddenly a man in the congregation, so if you like, imagine you're here today, and somebody just suddenly stood up and screamed out and said, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. It's, it's, it's quite an extraordinary phenomenon that suddenly this man, but what he said wasn't from himself. 
it's, it's very clear that what, what he, as you listen to him saying, and he said this man was a demoniac. Now, what was actually happening here? I mean, I suppose we could say, well, maybe this guy was a bit strange and said these things. I suppose that's always a uh, possible explanation. But a couple of things, what do you want with us? Not, not, not with me, not with, not with this individual who's, um, who's there. What do you want with us? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. That's, that last statement is very interesting. I know who you are. The Holy One of God. So here we're dealing with a phenomenon that, uh, that Christians understand very clearly reflects the existence of the spiritual world peopled by angels and by demons. That this here is an instance of a person who for whatever reason, and I can talk about this later, has, has come under the influence of a demonic spirit. And when that person was there in the synagogue, it was a demonic spirit that reacted to the very presence of Christ, feel, felt threatened by the presence of Christ. And that it, it, the spirit then reacted to him. And the spirit had insight, spiritual insight, if you like, into knowing this man, Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son, was the Holy One of God. And Jesus hadn't said that. In fact, he always used to say, I'm, I'm the son of man. So the, that demon had, if you like, spiritual insight, knew the true identity of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I, I, I think that's, that particular incident, just take it as an isolated incident, reveals a great deal about the reality of the spiritual world. And secondly, it reveals to us very clearly the, the, the deeper purpose and intention of Christ in his ministry. He has, in fact, come, as that demon recognised, to break, if you like, demonic uh, activity, to make the, the, break the powers of evil in the lives of, of human beings. So that might be a useful starting point, if that's um, just, just when we start thinking about what we actually understand about, about demons and about the relationship to the ministry of, of Christ. Well, that's excellent, Bishop, because we've started with, with Jesus Christ. And I want to ask you about your personal experiences, but before we get to that, perhaps you can tell us, how does the Catholic Church now understand demonic possession? Mm. The, um, I think the first statement is, is to say the Catholic Church teaches definitively uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the Catechism, very clearly in the Catechism, that, uh, that demons are real existent beings. So they're not just personifications. Uh, so, so we don't just use, see evil as somehow personified, as though it's not real, but it's just a, or, or a literary device or, or some kind of mythological explanation of evil and evil tendencies. We, we would say that the church teaches very clearly that the devil is a real existence, a, a fallen angel. So I think that's, that's the first point of departure about the, the faith of the church. Maybe this could be, um, could be useful too, that the church has come to understand if like, there are three basic dimensions in which demons, the devil, 
uh, uh, is, is active in human, human life. The, the first one is the area of temptation. Uh, now, all of us know we're tempted. The alarm goes on the, off in the morning and we're very tempted to roll over, aren't we? <laughs> That's not a demon. <laughs> well, at least I don't think so. Because the church says that we can, be, we can be tempted by the world, the devil and the flesh. This is the flesh. This is our, our human nature saying, give me a break, I don't want, don't want to go to uni today, I just want to sleep or whatever. You know? so, so we can be tempted by our flesh, by our own fallen human nature. So we don't say every single thing that we're tempted by is the direct work of the devil. But when we talk about the world, you know, we're tempted, we, we see stuff on television, you know, we, we sort of starts exp it's the world to try to draw us away from, from true realities about living and attract us to being, to being very egocentric, about looking after number one. So the world can have an influence in actually drawing us away from virtue, from truth, from a good way of life. So that's the other dimension of temptation. But the third temptation is that the devil can, can tempt us. When I, when I say this, and, and maybe, maybe you sort of can wonder, but have you been in situations where you just find there's, that, you, that there's a drawing to do something? Maybe you start to hear kind of this rationalisation going on inside you. Nobody will know. It doesn't matter. It's not really wrong. Why shouldn't you do it? You know, you, you, you know there's, there's a kind of a... A, a kind of a conversation going on. There's in your head. It's not you're not hearing this. You know, at least I don't think you don't hear it outside. Or, but there's there's like there's something happening here. There's a a kind of a a, a, a kind of a voice speaking, or there's there's a, there's thoughts are being put in my mind. There's there's a kind of a something trying to draw me to do something. That I know isn't right, isn't good, you know. That now, that's the sort of thing we're talking about, where where we find and rationalizations come in. Yeah, you know, it's very easy to rationalize things, isn't it? Very quickly, you want to you you, you 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 do something maybe afterwards, and you say straight away, oh, that's their fault, or or uh, it's not really it's not really uh, my responsibility, or whatever. You know, we can. There's this whole process whereby there there is an actions taking place in us that isn't just self, like that self that tells me I want to just turn over and go back to sleep in the morning when the alarm goes off. It's not just the attractions of the world, they, they have their, you know, their influence, but something else is happening. There's another dimension to what I'm experiencing. That's what the church would say, this is the way the devil is active. Now, it's almost like a voice or somebody on my shoulder. You know, whispering in my ear. It's that kind of thing. That, so that's temptation. I'd like to pro propose for your consideration to another dimension to uh, demonic activity, which when you think about it more and explore it more, it, it helps us to see, see the possible ways in which the demonic can be active. It's where people have addictions of one kind or another. You know, somebody has an addiction to gambling, to alcohol, to drugs, or an, an addiction to, in terms of 
an intense bitterness or hatred or rejection of somebody. You know, there's, there's a force at work inside me that's, a, that's somehow, it's not just this voice speaking in my ear, it's like something is in me that's, that's a power, a destructive power. Now, maybe we'll sort of say, well, it maybe has a psychological cause. You know, it's, uh, maybe I have this addiction because of things that have happened in my childhood or, or whatever. I feel a sensitivity, um, a weakness in my character. These things can be very true. That there can be psychological causes, backgrounds, trauma, all sorts of things. Um, you know, I may have been rejected as a child and I feel very vulnerable. All those things are real. But those things are things that can be exploited. See, they're, they're, they're weaknesses in us that the devil is able to exploit and, and, and take further. So we shouldn't, I, I think when we come to addictions, we shouldn't just limit them only to a possible psychological cause. There may be a psychological cause. One of the interesting things is that often psychology, medication, can often, if you like, soften or help to control these addictions, but not take them away. They're still there. All we're doing is managing them. So there's this question of, is there a way in which we can be set free from these addictions? And I believe that the freedom will come particularly in psychology and all those things can have a role, have a place. But the ultimate freedom, I think, is, is to be resolved at the spiritual level and not just at the psychological level. So it, it's as though, again, demons are using weaknesses, frailties, vulnerabilities that are part of our character or background or experience. As some, somehow we've... we've we, we've just been affected by certain things. If like they, they are now doors, possibilities, opportunities for the demonic to work. And what's what's the demon trying to do? He's trying to destroy. Demons basically want to destroy, draw us away from truth, away from goodness, away from beauty, to something ugly and destructive. And when you see a drug addict, hopelessly caught up in drugs. Their whole life is deteriorated and broken down. There's a, um, a story, another story, it's found in chapter 5 of St Mark's Gospel. It's often called the, the story of the, of the Gerasene demoniac. It's where Jesus goes on the other side of the Lake of Galilee to what's called the Gerasene district. And, uh, and there he's confronted by a man who they, they describe as firstly living among the tombs and it had incredible power. They've even tried to chain him, but he's been able to break the chains. And night and day he howls. So a completely terrible picture of a man under powers that are just destructive and, and, and weakening the whole sense of his human dignity, his worth, his value. There's this man that nobody can control his own life is just one, just a terrible existence. Jesus will eventually drive the demons out of that man. And when the people of the town come to see him again, we're told that he was sitting quietly and peacefully. His dignity was restored. Like evil destroys the human dignity, the, the, 
what, what all of us would, would prize very much, to be a person in control of themselves, a person who, who expresses warmth, compassion, love, all those sorts of things. All those things are taken away, stripped away from, from people by, by evil. The restoration can actually bring, bring people back to being a person who's free, who's calm, who's loving, all those sorts of things. The work of God is to restore humanity to what it was originally intended by God to be. So oppressions, obsessions, these sorts of things are another dimension where evil gets a real power and the person doesn't have themselves the capacity by their own willpower, by their own self-determination to overcome these powers. You know, they're just too strong. You know, addiction to pornography. They just can't help it. It's got to do it. So, so somehow evil has got a grip, control and influence over a person. The third area is fairly, it's fairly rare, but it does occur. And this is the, the stuff of films where you have somebody who comes into possession. Normally to come into possession, a person has to, the, the phrase we use is sell your soul to the devil. So this is where a conscious act takes place and a person actually then says evil, I, I give myself over to you, I want, I want evil. Now people can come into this, you're not likely to be thinking these thoughts, hopefully none of you would, but, but people can often be duped into it various ways and normally the stories associated with it, uh, Dr Faustus story, you know, from, from uh, the, um, Christopher Marvel's, um, um, Marlowe's play, was one who, who got drawn into evil by attracting him to power and to influence and so on. So the, the, the devil is a liar. He'll try to, to seduce us into things. And a person can reach that stage where they say, right, for I will give my soul to you so that I can possess powers that then you'll give to me. So that's where, that's one path. There are others, but that's one path in which possession can take place. And that's where a person, where Satan has got a complete control over a person. It's rare, but it does happen. So when you've got satanic cults, for instance, that's always a possibility. Not, not necessarily, but it's a, a possibility that can happen because people basically want to to really worship Satan, really want to go the path of, of, of the dark. So, Bishop, how does the church assist people who've come under this form of affliction, possession, that is? Mm. So, if, I think we could say we, we, can be, we can deal with the three of, three of them, if I just go back to that, because it's a useful way of looking at it. Because I think it's good to set exorcism, which I'll come to, which is a more dramatic... <laughs> side of this, but in the broader context, because I think we need to see the broader context. Uh, so in terms of temptation, the way we, we deal with temptation is basically we, we need to be strengthened spiritually because we make the decisions about temptation. You know that. You get tempted, I make a decision, I'll either give in to the temptation or I will resist it, reject it. Now, if we fail, as Catholics we know we've got the sacrament of reconciliation, which can be a powerful tool of spiritual renewal and regeneration and strengthening to be able to resist temptation. The other way is we can pray. What do we pray at the end of the Lord's Prayer? Lead us not into temptation. Lord, protect me against temptation. 
It's a very good thing when you're saying the Lord's Prayer, be conscious of those final words. Um, and, and our general, the stronger we are spiritually, the stronger we'll be able to resist temptation because we'll be more on the path of holiness, of goodness, of truth. And that will give us greater strength in resisting temptation. It sometimes means, though, that if you're moving those directions, the, temp the, the tempo of the temptations picks up as well. Uh, so the devil can give you a harder time because he's really determined to try and get you. Um, with, with regard to oppressions, um, so what we in the church, what we have are, are rites of what we call minor exorcism. These can only be done by a priest, although there is a role that lay people can play in praying for people who come under various forms of obsessions or demonic powers um, when they come under what I like to call spiritual afflictions of one kind or another. It is possible to pray with people because often they, they need help. They can't manage it alone. Whereas the first area is basically something we can manage alone by our own decision, by our own actions. When you've got somebody in oppression or, or, or an obsession, they really need help from others. And that's why praying with people or the church has various prayers what we call minor exorcism, various prayers that say a priest can pray for a person, uh, particularly invoking the power of God to help them uh, resist and overcome these, these, these um, obsessions. And then the third one is major exorcism, which can only be done by an exorcist, uh, either an exorcist appointed formally by the bishop of a diocese or by a priest appointed specifically for this particular exorcism by a bishop. So a, a priest, uh, so the, the, the right of major exorcism can only be exercised with the permission and approval of a bishop. And there is a right um, which has recently been revised in the 1990s, I think 1996, and it was uh, something which was formalised in the church in 1614, although there have been practices before that, but in 1614, the, the rites were formally codified, if you like, or structured in a book, in a book form that priests, uh, exorcists could use. So uh, those prayers uh, are available particularly for priests where you've got uh, major exorcism. So the fact that a, a, a priest is appointed an exorcist means this is something that the church takes very seriously. And um, I believe that, in, is it every diocese of the world or every archdiocese that there is an exorcist for that mm. diocese that deals specifically with this ministry. Yes, it's, it's normally understood that um, that every diocese would have an exorcist. So the bishop would choose a priest who is um, uh, holy, who is uh, wise in terms of knowledge and understanding and pastoral and is of strong and, and good, good character. So they're the, the qualities you look for. So a priest is because you are dealing with um, areas that are, um, are, are difficult, challenging, and, and so you need a priest who's really uh, capable of, um, of doing this work. So, so every, uh, every diocese there should be, uh, should be an exorcist. Okay. So I think, I think this makes sense to all of us in, in theory at least as, as how this could work, but perhaps Bishop, could you share with us maybe an example or a story of, of of encountering you know, this this ministry or the devil and sure uh, yeah. sure um, one of the um, most most of what I've dealt with is what I would call the middle middle one I don't I've not yet 
done a major exorcism. So I haven't, haven't done that. I've, I've been involved though with numbers of, uh, <coughs> of, of spiritual afflictions where people come to the church and we have an arrangement in the archdiocese that if, if, um, if somebody comes to a priest, the priest refers them to the chancery in the diocese who then, um, who then contact me and then, then I act as a clearinghouse, if you like, and sometimes I'll deal with it myself. Sometimes I have a priest, we have a priest who is a formal exorcist. We keep his identity um, hidden just because what happens is you can get plagued by people a bit in this area so we have to protect the priest but um, there are num numbers of instances the main things I would comment in general before I get down to one or two specific ones is that one of the things is always as with when you go to a doctor you've got to sort of ask the person um, you know if you went along to a doctor and said I'm sick well doctors gonna say well where are you sick where does it hurt or if you've got a headache if you've got a broken arm you know you, you obviously have to diagnose you have to be told firstly what is actually wrong what's actually happening and then secondly you, you can then apply a diagnosis you need an aspirin or you need heart surgery you know um, so you work out what to do so in this case um, we would normally look for uh, the cause of what's happened so somebody comes and they say look I'm having this experience right, let's sit down and talk about it so we'll uh, discuss it. Normally people who approach the church will talk about something that they have a clear sense is uh, of um, there's some kind of demonic activity. Maybe it's uh, sometimes they feel uh, a presence within them. A um, number of people describe it like a snake uh, that's worming around inside them. Uh, I know there's one woman that I've uh, been praying with for some time who, uh, who just describes this, this presence that uh, at, at, at times is, is, is just like moves within her in, in, a, in a way that's um, quite, quite terrible and, and uh, somehow so that she can sometimes hardly work, keep working because this presence, this activity is so, so strong. Um, now in that case, for instance, that woman um, about has had this experience close on 18 years um, and the source of it as we've talked about it seemed that she got involved a lot with kind of spiritualist groups and um, odd groups and then put herself under the influence of a, of a particular guru um, she actually who actually was was in the Pacific Islands she went over and spent time so she she immersed herself quite deeply and this guru fellow then then took more and more control over her and um, I've had other instances where um, another guru another woman who came under the influence of this another another particular fellow he just said to her coldly I said you will never escape me now so the the actual person became the influence the influence the means by which they actually were the ways in which evil actually got deep inside this person. So there's this living presence of evil that, uh, that was within them. I, I, I call them spiritual affliction because these people are really afflicted. This is a, this is a living hell for them. For many of them, it's, it's, it's something, it's not just on and off. 
it's a constant reality in their lives. Um, uh, think of another, um, another person, for instance, uh, I've had a number of people uh, who have been involved in Reiki. I don't know if you've probably heard of Reiki. And I really worry about Reiki because in Reiki, um, you, you go through this called attunement, which whereby a person, it's all for healing, you see, and people get really interested because they just lay their hands over people and, and, and send power in to heal. So people are very attracted to say, oh, I can do some good with this. But there are various stages where you invoke certain uh, spiritual forces and there are kind of ceremonies surrounding these, this, this uh, entry into this, this process. And a number of people have told me that for a while it's wonderful. They've got this power and people say, oh, I don't know what you did, but I really feel better afterwards. I feel you've really helped me and all this sort of thing. And then it goes dark. It goes really dark. And they start finding this, this power that which they thought was for good has now become a power that, that they just can't get rid of and, and becomes a destructive power in their life in, in various ways. So a number of cases uh, I've been involved with people where this has happened. And so what has ha what's, what's happened, they've opened themselves to a spiritual world in, in a way that has enabled evil to come in. And what initially seems good then turns dark and they find themselves trapped. They can't get rid of it. And that's why people will come sometimes to, to me. I, mean, I remember one young girl um, who we were able to free from, from that and uh, uh, she's, she's now a great advocate. She, 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 I remember she's talked to young people. She said, don't go near Reiki. <laughs> like, really? Because of her experience, her terrible experience through it. So she's really strongly against it. This other woman, just going back to this other woman who was for 18 years, one of the difficulties is when a person's had a, a long period, um, this, with this woman I've not been able to set her free completely. We've, we've made a lot of progress in prayers and I've, this has been going on for well over a year now with this particular woman. I haven't, uh, haven't been able, we haven't been able to set her completely free but we've diminished the evil somewhat and we've been and she herself has grown and developed and, and developed if you like the ability to spiritually handle it much better than before before she was just completely a victim whereas now she's determined to be free she's determined to live a full christian life because before she wasn't even she she was baptized a christian but had no real background in Christianity whatsoever but she's come back she's actually wasn't a Catholic she's become a Catholic now she's a daily mass goer and we've made a lot of progress not as I said not fully successful I think with her maybe it's my own lack of holiness <laughs> to be the instrument I really should be but um, but it's also the fact of her being caught up for such a long period in a very intense environment uh, whereby I think the, the spiritual presence has got so deeply, if you like, ingrained or so deeply in her that it's a, it's a, a greater struggle. But she's the, we, we pray on a fairly regular basis and, and she, she says she gets a lot of help. She often too finds, when she's come, just before she comes to see me, she comes under more intense attack um, just before she comes to see me. Well, I've got 
a lot of questions still left, but I'm conscious of time, so perhaps should we open it up to the floor? Does anyone have any questions? Just the, um, in the evangelical system, the practice of pushing over, releasing that sort of approach mm. in mm. some of the yes, it, around Sydney. Can you comment on how that is likened to this? Sure. The question was just for, to, to hear it. In, in, in uh, various evangelical churches, there, there is this practice sometimes of people falling backwards and so forth. Um, the, the church, um, because this has become a, 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 a fairly significant phenomenon in Christianity, there are many uh, churches who now have deliverance ministry and there are many preachers and, and people going around working in this area. Um, the, the church, and it's influenced Catholic practice a lot as well. The church has uh, brought out a number of guidelines about this. Uh, one of the things that we, we try to do is, is avoid the spectacular. Um, most, uh, I, uh, for instance, we, we do exorcisms in private, not in public. Um, we, we, uh, and and if, if at times there will be manifestations happen, but we try to, to calm them. It's not, so you avoid the dramatic in that. Um, so sometimes people have particular gifts and sometimes they manifest themselves by people falling backwards and being a sort of a trance for a while. People do report uh, the good comes out of this. Generally speaking, the Catholic Church would, would want to uh, caution in this area, particularly that it doesn't become um, hyped up, you know, uh, or create emotional situations. So uh, all the time I'm, I'm very conscious of that and and I, I believe the ministry should be done. It should be an exercise of faith, and done with authority, but also with a certain calm and steady. That's not to say that it doesn't become quite strong, but you you, you just watch that it doesn't become excessively emotional or hyped up. And I don't favour, and the church doesn't favour, public display in this area. It's better done privately. So just just continuing from that. Um, so you've talked a lot of the things you've talked about. Bishop, you've you've sort of kept away from, I guess, the spectacular or the you know the big things that we see in the movies. But would you like to perhaps comment on on some of the things that we do see in the movies, you know, in Exorcist movies? And, and mm. is this realistic? Does this happen, or is it just made mm. up? Mm. Um, certainly, the, the church's uh, experience over the, over the centuries has been that uh, where you've got full possession. Um, the the rites can be can be quite dramatic because uh, the powers of evil sometimes the uh, the evil spirits will uh, engage or seek to engage with the exorcist a little bit like the story I told you that's how they will lash out I've had, I've had a few experiences like that but uh, not a lot where, where the evil spirit becomes um, very vocal and they, they sometimes people have sort of extraordinary strength you've got to hold people down um, so that story uh, in, in, Matthew, in Mark chapter 5 of the great strength they couldn't even hold him with chains that, that sometimes happens so normally in an exorcism you have other people the priest never does an exorcism alone you'll always have other people there uh, to, to help and support so there are a number of things traditionally um, having knowledge of things that nobody else can know a little bit like that evil spirit says I know who you are sometimes um, an evil spirit can even tell the, uh, can even have insight into the conscience of the uh, exorcist and say 
I know when you did the sin, things like that, you know, you've done this sin, you haven't, you know. Um, they can have knowledge of languages and, and, and speak in languages um, that, so they don't know. Often there can be contortions in the voice and in the face and, and in the body that can take place and there can be dramatic manifestations rolling around and so forth that can happen. So those things are possible and certainly the tradition of the church uh, recognises that. Um, but uh, as I said, that's where you're looking at full uh, possession that those manifestations. So what you see in the films, a lot of it's Hollywoodized a bit. Um, certainly the the Exorcist movie and the one, the uh, the right. Um, I've read the book, uh, which is written by a, a priest exorcist, and there's a number of aspects of the film that would obviously put into a Hollywood style. So so we have to be careful not to be influenced too much by the movie presentations of things. Okay. Um, do you want to um, You were saying before that um, in order to perform exorcisms you had to be ordained holy. What does that entail? Like, What would make you sort of holy in order to do this exorcism? I, th I think you basically want uh, somebody who is um, a priest who, who, is, uh, who has a very strong spiritual life because you do need to have like certain spiritual strength, you know. So, so uh, we would a bishop would choose a priest that that is, is known to be strong spiritually, person close to God, having a strong spiritual life. Um, so those sort of qualities of holiness would be important. Yeah. One of one of you three. Um, one for the person that's being oppressed. How do you happen to prepare for it? Like, is it true that the demon can know the person's sins but not always their confessed? So, like, what sacraments and sacramentals and prayer plays and the whole thing for the person's actually suffering? Um, so, what you're asking is, is, is how uh, a person prepare. prepare, yeah. Uh, one of the things we have in the, the rite of exorcism is uh, there's, there's a penitential rite <coughs> and there's also an affirmation of faith. Now these two are very important things. Do you remember the first of the, the baptismal promises? Do you reject Satan and all his works and all his empty show? Remember that? You know, probably people just gloss over, oh, you know, it's not very serious. Well, the church gives it serious enough to keep it in every baptism. To say, and, and I, I put great store by that. And anybody who comes for an exorcism, one of the first things you'll, you, you, you do two things. Sometimes there'll be a confession beforehand, if they're Catholic. Um, or you can um, lead them in a confessional period, uh, a penitential rite, that's very important. And then secondly, the affirmation of faith. Do you, do you reject Satan? You know? uh, and then secondly, do you believe in God the Father? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Um, so those two things are very important prerequisites for uh, exorcism to, to help prepare the person. And obviously... The person themselves needs to want to be free and secondly, wants to will cooperate in faith. They can't just be simply passive. They've got to be involved themselves. I want to be free of this. Um, and then we often would call them to, to uh, I have books of prayers I give them to intensify their own prayer life, um, to go to Mass, receive Holy Communion, all those sorts of things. So the person themselves has to be more spiritually active especially if you have to do the 
prayers over a period of time that you so the person um, needs to be very much engaged with the process it's very important yeah Hi, um, I was just wondering, within the spiritual realm, do you believe that um, it's confined to angels and demons? Because I know there are many religions in the world and a lot of them have um, spiritual transcendent experiences. Would you say that that person is just experiencing themselves or that they're experiencing something angelic or something demonic? Or is there some sort of neutral zone? Mm. But that opens up the question of the spiritual realm. So when people have experiences, uh, the spiritual realm, how we understand it. I think we always have to understand that there are three components that are involved in, in, in any spiritual experience. One is the person themselves, so their psychology, their background, their culture, their experiences, all those sorts of things. The second one can be the Spirit of God or, the, or, or can be angelic activity. And the third one can be demonic. So there, so when there's an experience, somebody has an experience that they say is somehow transcendental of one kind or another, you have to sort of say, well, and it can be mixtures of, of them as well, so not this all mutually exclusive, but we have to look at the possibility that there are three possible sources of explanation. I would just limit it to those three, but because it's possible that imagination can come into play and it may be linked to something which is angelic or something which is demonic or it can be just purely imaginative you've been you're a very imaginative creative person or you've been reading these books or listening to this music or, or whatever and it could be that that imagination imagination has just gone off you know and so you're imagining things that are real that are really just in your imagination so it is important and i think that's where where if a person has a spiritual experience it's good to get advice about it. Even if it's good, that's where we've always had spiritual directors in the church. Uh, sort of a, an independent person that you can come and present your spiritual experience to and they can help you discern its possible meaning, its possible value, and whether it is from yourself, it is from God, or it is from uh, the, the devil, you know, to identify those three possible sources. For those of you who have questions, anyone has to leave before two? Does anyone have to leave before two? So we can take time with the questions then. Um, did, did you want to go? Yeah. Uh, how does one, I guess, obviously get involved with ecstasy? Because you know, obviously they, they wouldn't really want to pick up the best or something like that. They wouldn't really want to be, um, it's not like checking something from the doctor. Yeah. So you may not even know you are because you may just yeah. think what you're doing is part of society. Like yeah. So the, qu the question is, um, when would you know to go to get the help? Um, normally I think, so, so, I mean, if you've got a physical pain, you would go to a doctor. You know, if, you, if you've got a toothache, you go to a dentist. You know? if, you've, if you're struggling with some kind of psychological issue or lack of, lack of self-esteem or, uh, or, or maybe some anger management or something like issues or something, you might go to a psychologist or you may feel very depressed or something like that. You might go to a psychologist. People will go to the church when they sense that what's happening to them has some kind of spiritual 
cause or base or, or influence. So now it may be that somebody who has some psych psychological issue, there's also associated with it a spiritual component. Yeah. Some, like one of the things that we normally do, unless something is very obviously spiritual, we, I have a psychologist I work with and I normally would send somebody, somebody comes and even if they describe things that seem to be of a spiritual nature, unless it's quite evident to me, very clearly evident to me that this is demonic, I would normally ask them to go and see a psychologist. The psychologist doesn't say this person is possessed or this person has a spiritual affliction. What the psychologist would say is, I can find no psychological explanation for what this person is experiencing. So then goes back to the priest who could then say, well, we can't explain it psychologically, so let's, let's, let's then take it that there well could be a spiritual cause here. So they're the sort of processes that we would have. Normally, before you do anything, you spend some time talking to the person and, um, you know, I, I kind of look, talk to the person, let them describe their experiences, then try, in terms of my own experience, my own understanding of things, to try to understand what may be going on. But, as I said, I would often ask the person to have a psychological test as well and wait for the results. And sometimes something which presents as a, as a spiritual thing, the psychologist will come back and say, no, this is this particular thing that's happening in the person. And, uh, and so then we would say there's a psychological source of, of, to deal with this particular issue. Yeah. Um, this kind of follows on from what you were talking about, because uh, I mean, you mentioned a case where your work, you know, you're praying or you're, you're trying to help to exercise someone and it's not working, like it's not, well, at least not immediately, you know, it takes a long time and it seems like the devil's still there or something. And um, I mean, that just seems quite counterintuitive to me, like, you know, just on the, on the surface of it. I mean, um, um, so you mentioned that, you know, one possibility is that as the exorcist, you're not holy enough. Um, and then you mentioned like another possibility might be that it's just psychological or something. Um, but then this third possibility that um, you know the devil's just still staying there. I mean, mm -hmm. it just seems um, uh, it just seems strange that that would be something that God would allow, for example. Like, mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you could just comment on that. Like, why would um, why would God not allow? Um, you know, why would not God? Just take the devil mm. away if there's mm. an exorcism happening and you're really, everyone's trying hard to get this devil out of there. Yeah, still there. <laughs> yeah, no, it's very true. Um, so, so the question is, you know, um, if, if you're not able to be successful, what could be the possible explanation for why you haven't been successful in, in exorcism? And I think there are a number of things. Um, one, one could be that the exorcists themselves is limited that's what I tend to think <laughs> myself um, the other possibility is that there could be a mixture of the psychological and the spiritual that, that you haven't spotted and there may be an issue that's somehow in the person themselves that is limiting the effectiveness of what you're doing so that's that is always a possibility in this area there are no you know there's 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 no certainty if you like absolute certainty and the lord himself uh, was saying one says when the 
the, um, the, the apostles came back and said we couldn't cast out those spirits and he said only those can be cast out by prayer and fasting so you need a more intense spiritual effort on the part of the exorcist to actually be able to drive out these evil spirits so there can be a whole range of things I would consider myself very much a, a learner in this area I, I, I do it not because I think I have any particular gifts well, not because I want to do it but because I think it needs to be done there are, there are many many people that I've come across who are suffering, ter suffering terribly and they're turning to the church for help and I think the church should step up and offer the help that it can help and, you know, on occasions you're able to do terrific help there's, um, there's a woman actually tonight I'm going to um, bless uh, a home of a woman who uh, came to me for, um, for exorcism, uh, for, for prayers for exorcism and uh, through the prayers she, she told me a week or two later that she just felt completely set free after prayers that we, we prayed. So, and they've just moved a new house and she's very conscious of spiritual things so she said, could you come and bless our house? I really want the blessing on our new house. I'm doing that tonight. So, um, you have a whole range of, um, of experiences and it's in the realm of the mysterious and I, I'd be the first to say I know very little. Yeah. We'll go um, here and then over here. So, do you want to go first? Yeah. Thanks for your talk, Bishop. Um, before Vatican II, exorcism, actual township, minor order, what did, they, like, what did they actually do? Did they perform exorcisms? Because they weren't priests. And what are your thoughts on the suppression of this minor order? Should we bring it back? Mm. Why, why not? My second question is, um, <laughs> yeah. well, in the Gospels and the Acts, like, the, the exorcism seems to be done pretty quickly. Like, obviously Jesus and his authority, so, you know, yeah. but, but the apostles just went, you know, in the name of Jesus Christ, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, command you to leave. Whereas, it seems to be kind of a longer process nowadays. Mm. Mm. Can you explain why that? Yeah. Okay. Just uh, so your first question was uh, the right of minor exorcism. It, uh, the in the uh, prior to Vatican Council, uh, everybody coming to be a priest was uh, ordained, uh, was inst installed as uh, w with the order of minor exorcism, and uh, the prayers in that were were very clearly saying that that this is going to be an area of ministry, but it's related to the priesthood. It's a step. So they were elector. Port Elector Acolyte Exorcist were the four called minor orders and they're all associated with four elements to priestly ministry. So Porter was looking after the church, Lector was reading the word of God, um, Acolyte was serving at the altar and Exorcist was involved in the spiritual warfare. So, so they were orders uh, preparing for expression in, the, in priestly ministry in particular. So, <clears throat> so they were, were given and the prayers associated with were very clearly saying that this is going to be part of your work as a priest. And I believe it's important that every priest understands that, that exorcism, not major exorcism, but minor exorcism, uh, is, is a part of the ministry of a priest. And so that might be blessing a house if there's something going on the house or it might be... Uh, like in, in every baptism... You know what's next time you go to a baptism? You listen, the priest prays a prayer of minor exorcism over 
the child or the person to be baptised. So minor exorcism is a normal part of priestly ministry. And your second question was... Oh, well, it's instantaneous, yeah. Um, certainly there's no question when the Lord does it. Yeah. But, but we see... And I think, I think again, we just would recognise that um, in the beginning of the church, there was an outpouring of grace, extraordinary grace, uh, upon the apostles, you know, Pentecost and so on. So I think they were very much operating with, under that, that grace that gave them extraordinary... They could save the crippled by the, by the temple door, stand up and walk in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk, and he did, you know. Uh, they raised the dead, you know. Both Peter and Paul both raised the dead. Um, these things do happen, but they're, they're, they're not uh, as manifest, if you like. And generally speaking, now prayers... I mean, you can have one... And I've done it, one session of ex prayers of exorcism. <coughs> it works. In other cases, it has to be repeated. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I um, just, um, and I've got to be careful, I know I get myself in a bit of trouble on this one, but, but um, certainly I have concerns about yoga and, and Reiki. Um, I, one of, and and tai, tai Chi, similarly, because one of the things that these, these, all these practices do uh, is that a person enters into a, a state of inner peace or calm, whatever they enter, but then... All these, all these particular practices encourage the person to open the mind out to the spiritual realm. Now, what we, what we do through the exercise of, of our intellect, our will, is we guard what comes into us. You know, we make decisions about it. Now, if you open up, like you're, like you're just sort of saying, anybody out there, come on in. That's the danger. Now, nothing may happen, but there's a possibility. And I've, I've had a number of cases where people have, you know, with all good intentions, gone into this and they've just, under guidance from various people, have just said, we'll just do that. I'll just open my mind to this spiritual realm. But what is it out there? So when we pray, we very specifically open our mind to God. We very specifically focus the person to whom we're praying. If you just go in like, just to say, I'll just open up myself to whatever, that's where it's dangerous. And that's why I tend, you know, Tai Chi, a lot of these things are, have a, a dimension of physical exercise, like yoga and, and so on, uh, and Tai Chi is movements and so forth. But they're all got, um, they all encourage a person to move to the spiritual level. I think at the level of the physical, it's probably not much danger. But if you, and particularly when people get more and more involved in it and really get kind of um, living for it, then they enter more and more deeply into it, it just opens up the possibility for things to happen. And I said I've had a number of cases where this clearly is what has taken place. I've got a Nick first. Yeah. Um, can the souls of the damned oppress or possess people or is it only for? Um, I, I would say uh, only fallen angels, 
where this is a, again a very mysterious area and I don't know very much about it but you can have the case of you know we talk about ghosts and haunted houses and all that sort of stuff we're not talking about demons here we're talking about about the spirits of of of, of the dead um, often they're associated often call them unquiet spirits remember what we say in our catholic liturgy at requiem mass may they rest in peace i had a case for instance uh, a while back where this um house this woman came to see me because there were really weird things happening in the house and uh, and and she seemed a reasonable sort of woman however what i found out was her son went over to india and got involved with something in India, something uh, which I think was a little bit dark or a bit weird, and eventually died. We don't, she doesn't. She never found out how he died, but he he died. And because he was in India, they um, they then gave her. They, they cremated him. Then then she had the ashes, and she kept the ashes on the, the mantelpiece in the home. Um, and um, and then and then, then strange things started to happen. So I said, look. Did you have a requiem mass for your um, for your son? She said, no, no, I didn't. We just had the ashes come back. So I said, well, well, let's have a requiem mass. So we we had a requiem mass for him and prayed that he would rest in peace. And there are no more issues after that. Yeah, I just wanted to ask in terms of um, the right of blessing, in terms of holy water. Like I've I've read. Online that um, apparently before the Vatican to um, apparent apparently like um the holy water that was that, that was blessed under the old rite is stronger because yeah yeah because the water is actually exercised and, um, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and so the, whereas with the new rite the water is just blessed or something yeah. And apparently, um, in terms of as a, as a sacramental deal, right, in terms of the water, yeah, yeah. powerful. Yeah. Uh, I, I it's, the it's a good question. That there are um, there, there are a number of prayers of blessing, uh, say for holy water, and one says you bless according to need. So, so the blessing prayer we use in the liturgy, so that can be when we have the Asperges right in the in the in the new liturgy, is basically a prayer which is the two things. It's to, it's to firstly link us with our baptismal dignity and the fact that, that, that we are sons and daughters of God by virtue of the waters of baptism. And secondly, it, it is a prayer that actually asks for protection against evil. Um, so the, the prayer does specifically mention that. So, but it's more like protect us against any influence of evil. Now, where you've got a case of a, um, say, a house that... that people feel there's an evil presence in uh, you can use that prayer of blessing of course and that water is holy water can be and, and would be effective but I I, um, I have another uh, blessing prayer that I I've produced a manual for priests and in this manual for priests I've given another one which comes from the old right which is more specifically uh, oriented towards the driving out of evil out of a location so horses for courses you, so you use that prayer of blessing so uh, when I go to certain places I use that prayer or when I'm praying with somebody because you, you bless holy water before you actually have the, the exorcism right in the exorcism right the prayer is again more specifically oriented towards exorcism so, the, so you have a variety of prayers of blessing 
according to the particular circumstances uh, of, of what you're using the water for. Yeah. Hi, I'm, I'm just wondering, in exorcism, minor or major, um, when you're actually exercising a demon, are you addressing the demon or are you addressing God and saying, God, remove this demon from this individual, free them, blah, blah, blah. Or do you say, I command you out in the name of Jesus Christ? Like, so you're addressing the demon or are you um, praying to God? Mm. There, there are two, two prayers that we use in Exorcism. One is called the deprecative prayer, which is, Lord, help this person be set free from evil. Or the indicative prayer, which is, Spirit of evil, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, leave. Now, only a priest can, can say, this is what church says, only a priest says the second prayer. Only the priest should directly address that. Is that because it's dangerous? Because it's dangerous, okay. yeah. And so, so the, the church teaching is to say that any Christian can pray, if somebody's feeling, you know, like if somebody's feeling under pressure, you can pray with them, pray for them to be protected against evil, but as I said, only a priest should use the indicative prayer, which is found within the rite of exorcism, major exorcism. So, Can I ask, why is it dangerous for someone who hasn't been ordained, who's not a priest, to use that prayer? Um, one of the things, why is it dangerous? I think one of the things, firstly, is what I feel a great consolation for me when I'm doing it is I'm not doing it. It's not me, Julian Porteous, who is praying. I'm, in this case, a bishop. I'm exercising that that role, I, I'm acting in the name of the church, so that when, when you use the, the priest uses prayers of minor exorcism or major exorcism, it's not he himself, it's not his own personal faith, that's an important component, but he's acting in the name of the church. And, and so, if you like, you bring the, the, the spiritual power of the church to bear in this particular situation. When a lay person prays, they are largely praying out of their own faith. And, and people can have very strong faith and people can have special gifts too in this area. But it really depends on the individual. And the church just cautions people for going in out of their depth in, in the things. And, uh, and so that's, that's why that, that distinction is, is made. Should we finish now? I think we've... <laughs> One more question. One more oh, question oh, at the back, And then we'll... Um... And we'll finish after this last question. Yeah. Um, should we have knowledge? I, I think, as I said, the, the um, priest who's asked by a bishop to be an exorcist is one that ha who has knowledge. Uh, of this of this uh, area because um, there's a lot of work of, of discernment even during the prayers themselves it's the way you progress with the prayers it's important so having a knowledge and experience really helps in knowing the best way to go about it um, but normally you'd hope well normally a, a priest who got involved in this area would do some have some preparation or develop some knowledge so, for instance, I've had a couple of uh, exorcists, I've organised for a couple of exorcists to come out to Sydney um, and we've had meetings with priests, we've brought priests from around Australia to have meetings to give some training and reflection. We had two exorcists from the United States came and addressed all the Catholic bishops of, New, uh, of Australia last uh, May, spent a whole day with us.
talk about this area. So um, it's an area where we do need to provide um, instruction and training and assistance for anybody who's going to work in this area. Okay. Thank you, Bishop Julian, and I hope that we all have received some knowledge of this as well so that we can really understand this ministry and, and yeah, strengthen our faith by it as well. Mm. So thank you. Good. Thank you very much. You've been listening to an Exorcist Tells His Story with Bishop Julian Cordia. For more talks and resources, visit radio.org.au.